Hello and welcome to this special episode of Science Shambles. This was recorded uh, back in the summer at the Latitude Festival when we did a live Science Shambles. Helen Chersky was in the host chair and our special guest was Professor Kevin Fong. So if you didn't get to see this discussion at Latitude, uh, either because you weren't at Latitude or you simply couldn't get in the tent because it was quite packed when we did this, we are pleased to present it to you now. Remember, you can support the Cosmic Shambles Network by going to patreon.com slash cosmic shambles and getting lots of extra goodies that often feature Kevin and Helen. And of course, tickets are on sale now for the Nine Lessons and Carols for Curious People show. And the compendium, the Christmas Compendium of Reason, hosted by Robin Ince and Brian Cox at the Royal Albert Hall. Tickets for all those are on sale now at CosmicShambles.com. All profits go to charity. So we hope to see you there. And now, on to the show. Here's Helen and Kevin. Hello. Hello, Latitude. This is great to be here uh, and to see much enthusiasm inside the tent in the shade, even though it's slightly warmer in here than outside. So you're showing good dedication. We like this to start with. Um, So welcome to Science Shambles. This is being recorded for the Science Shambles podcast. I'm Ellen Chersky, as you just heard. And if anyone in the audience is not familiar with Cosmic Shambles, uh, Science Shambles sits underneath Cosmic Shambles. We make all kinds of live and online shows, and uh, we're generally interested in the best ideas, the most interesting ideas in science and comedy and music, all the best of being human, all in one place. Oh, there's a lot of shouting going on. Um, so I'm joined with on stage by someone who will be familiar to many of you. I'm sure this is Kev Fong, who is a doctor and broadcaster. And Kev is one of those annoying people who really has done everything. And he's amazing at it. And he's a nice guy, so we forgive him for it. Um, so he's worked for NASA. He is a practicing doctor. He works for Kent Air Ambulance. Uh, he's a professor at UCL, the university where I also work. He worked uh, with closely in the pandemic response in the NHS during the first part of the pandemic. Um, and basically, if you want to know anything about either human spaceflight or medicine, Kev is your man. So um, between the two of us, we've got quite an interesting mixture of expertise because I'm a physicist, but I study the ocean. And so I'm a very Earth-focused person. If it's outside the von Karman line, we might come to what that is, um, I, I stay firmly on the inside. And, and I think we're facing a time at the moment where there's lots, of, there's lots of things to do in the world. And one of them is, do we look outward into space or do we look back at our own planet? And how do those two things interact with each other? Um, so they've both been great spaces for exploration and humans love to explore. But, you know, when push comes to shove, what really are the benefits of those two things? So we're going to be talking about all of that, about how the problems on Earth um, overlap with or can be informed by problems in space. And towards the end, we will have time for audience questions. So please do, if you've got a question along the way, there will be an opportunity for you to ask it. So do remember it. Um, So right, I think, and just to check, can everyone, there is a bit of music in the background. Can you hear us clearly at the back? People at the back with their thumbs up, we like that. Thank you very much. Okay, so um, let's begin at the beginning then, Kev. So where did your... Where did your interest in space come from? Just like, you know, what was it about space that grabbed you? Well, I, I mean, it, it was a childhood thing. Uh, my, well, my parents woke me up. The, the last Apollo mission was 1975, and that was the, uh, I mean, that's the T-shirt I'm wearing. It's the Apollo Soyuz project, uh, where the Americans and the Russians docked in space at the height of the Cold War, shook hands, swapped flags. And I, I remember very vividly, I, I was about five at the time, but, but being woken up 
uh, and shown that and understanding that this was something momentous. I mean, I didn't quite understand what I was seeing. Um, and so that, for me, drove everything, and that drove my career in science, my interest in science for the rest of my life, really. So it's interesting, isn't it? Because that, that first thing is cooperation. Like, often when we think of space now, we think of cooperation. Um, because it's, there's this universality. Like, one of my sort of bees, when comparing the ocean and space, one of the things about the ocean is that the basic physics of an ocean is that light does not travel through it. By definition, if you look into the ocean, you cannot see very far. Because even and I, if you make a radio wave that is pretty much the size of Earth, it will only penetrate about 100 meters into the ocean. So light of any kind just does not go into the ocean. And we're very visual creatures. So I've always been frustrated as an ocean scientist that you know, if you're into space, every, it's, it's democratic, right? Everyone can look at the stars and be inspired. And those little oceanographers are going, but what about us? And people say, well, what is it that you're talking about? And you sort of go, well, it's, it's quite dark. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's very hard to say. So how, did you, how much does the visual stuff matter in space when it comes to being inspired by well, it? Well, I mean, it matters massively. And we sort of take for granted now, don't we, that, that we see the Earth as a globe from space. But, but, but the first images of the Earth you know, where you see the Earth hanging in the vacuum against the void come from the Apollo 8 mission in, in 1968 from Jim Lovell's very famous mission. Uh, and that, that, that image that we use as an icon of the Earth as a system really only comes from the middle of the 20th century. And so vision is everything in space. And in fact, the exploration of space starts long before you start firing people into space. It starts with what you can see. Uh, and and now, now, with the James Webb Telescope up, um, that boundary is expanding both in space and time massively. So vision is everything. What you can see is everything in space exploration, for sure. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because actually, the o we only have three ways, I think, of knowing that the rest of the universe is there. We can see it because we have light. We have neutrinos that come from the sun. They sort of come from somewhere. And we have gravitational waves. And it's really like we're really isolated, right? Uh, uh, well, I was reflecting the other day. So James Webb's telescope is up. Uh, and uh, so this is our new space telescope uh, that's replacing Hubble. And it's a million miles from Earth. And it's hanging there now. And it can see further back in time and further just in distance than any other object before. When I started astrophysics at UCL in the 1990s, we'd never observed a planet outside our own solar system. We didn't even know if there were other planets in, in the universe. We thought they were probably there. We'd never seen them. Uh, we didn't know how old the universe was. Uh, we, we had no idea really what the origins of life in, on Earth were, let alone what they might be uh, in the universe in general. And now we're out there with a telescope that has an outside chance of peering into the thin slivers of atmosphere around other planets that might harbor life, looking for the signatures of life around other stars in our galaxy. So that's a long way to come, and, and you know, it's an exciting future. Well, the thing, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I, I, you know, we know the, the, the billionaires seem to get to treat things as their plaything now. And it seems that the billionaires fall into, well, one of three categories, the ones that don't do anything, the ones like perhaps Bill Gates, who are interested in problems on Earth, and the ones like Elon Musk, who are convinced it's all out in space. But when they look outward, they're looking for life. They're looking at what we already have back here. And I guess this is, this is part of this discussion that space can be seen as a displacement activity almost. It's that we've got lots of very hard, difficult problems down here, and they're fiddly and annoying, and there's no simple answers and no magic bullets, and you just have to put the hard work in. Well, you can look at the stars and imagine great things, and because you can't go there, no one's ever going to prove you wrong. You know, 
Is space just a distraction? That's what I'm saying. Yeah, it is for me. <laughs> I, uh, so, so, so look, it's, for me, it's quite interesting. Space is what gets me into science, right? Because that, that as, as a five-year-old child with parents who didn't go to university, but space and human space exploration in particular was a big enough idea that they were able to use it as something that they knew it was something that was worth talking about, and they knew it was something that might drive my interest. So it's very clever of them to use it in that way. And then I went to study astrophysics, but the reason I went from astrophysics to medicine, because uh, I, I had that thought, I thought, what's the point? It's been lovely studying all this esoteric stuff, but I've got to do something to help people, really. And then I went uh, into medicine uh, after that. So I, I guess I made that decision at that point, but it's not as simple as that. And I think that there's a lot that we gain from, well, exploration is, there's a virtue to exploration in and of itself. But there's a great example of why exploration is important. And that is, you know, we're here talking about climate change today and climate change and its threat to, to us is really apparent at this time. But if we were having this conversation about 100 years ago, we would be talking about the exploration of Antarctica the way we talk about the exploration of space. And we would say, What's the point of going to Antarctica? You can't, you, it's tactically useless, you can't farm it, you can't settle it, it's dangerous and it's expensive to go there. And yet by the end of the same century, the surveys of the ice cores, so these big long ice cores that you sort of dig out the ice and then you can see back and the little bubbles that are trapped in those ice cores tell you what the atmosphere of the planet was like, you know, the, the so-called paleo-atmosphere, sort of the ancient atmosphere of our planet. That information was amongst the most convincing evidence that, that, that the globe was heating. Uh, and so what, what looked like a complete wa expensive waste of time to start the 20th century literally is providing you information that can contribute to saving the planet by the end of the same century. And there is no reason why the exploration of space shouldn't be the same. Well, I think exploration is interesting. So what, I mean, humans are kind of gripped by exploration. Like we're, I mean, one of the reasons I guess our species has got so far is that we're never happy, right? We always want to know what's over the next hill and what's over the next thing and what can we push and where can we go? Um, and so maybe this desire for something else is quite, quite useful. Um, but when it comes to, so I mean, exploring the early ocean is something that, I think the comparison between the, you know, the Gemini, the Apollo, the early missions and, and in the ocean is quite interesting because in the ocean, the way it worked basically was that um, people sailed about on ships in a lot, for a lot and no one ever thought about what was underneath the surface. And then in the 1930s, this guy called William Beebe, an American, um, 1932, he got a, what he called a bathysphere, it's basically a big metal sphere. And he was dangled down. He got himself dangled off a ship. And he described it as being like, like being dangled on a spider's, a, pea, a, a length of spider's, a pea suspended by a spider's web dangling into the ocean. He was really good at painting these beautiful pictures of being immersed in nothingness. Um, and then not, it's not so similar from spaceflight in a lot. You know, you're, you're, you're sort of trapped inside it almost. Yeah, and the, and the deep ocean is as threatening as, as, as spaceflight, I think, and, and certainly scares. I, I prefer to get in a spacecraft than I would to get in a bathysphere, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting, because I would pick the bathysphere. Yeah, yeah. I'm much um, happier about the engineering and the rockets. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> they do work. They do work. But, um, but, you know, there was this period in the 60s when, so after the Second World War, people had sonar. They'd worked out that there were things in the ocean. They could see layers of biology going up and down. Suddenly, exploration of the deep became a practical thing. And then in the 60s, there was, you know, the, um, Picard and Don Walsh 
went down to the into the Challenger Deep. And at the same time as this, you know, the space race was getting going, and the oceanographers really thought that they had a place here, that these were going to be equal, they were going to be equal partners. And that is not the way. <laughs> It's not the way it came out, basically because you can't see in the ocean. Yeah, I, do you, I mean, do you think that, genuinely think that that's why? Because they always say that thing, that we know more about the surface of the moon than we do about the deep ocean. But, but, Got but, things to say about that. Well, but is, it, is, is that true? And do you think it's simply because you can't see, visually see into the deep ocean? So I think the pers our perspective, um, it is true that we can't see into the deep ocean and so we think it's not real because we're very visual. I have several bees in my bonnet about this. One of them is that um, the ocean is a three-dimensional fluid space with things moving around and it's got life built into it and it does lots and lots and lots and lots of things. It's not a case that if you just draw a map and you know where the edges are, then you know a place. And with the moon, sure, there's some geology, there's a little bit of chemistry, but a lot of mapping the moon has been just mapping out what shape it is and then there you go. Whereas in the ocean, it's not just that the seafloor has a shape, it's that the water on top of it is flowing and moving around, it's shifting heat and energy around our planet. There is much, much, much more to know. Um, and so the fact that some parts of the ocean have not been mapped as well as all of the moon, I think is kind of a false argument because it misses the point that the ocean is doing things, whereas the moon is doing a little bit less, I would say. So, so I mean... So, in your view, is the money in the wrong place? Should all the money be in the ocean rather than in space? I don't think all of it, for the reasons you've given, because I think that that perspective, that view of, of, of Gaia, if you want to phrase it like that, that is the most powerful tool. That's the, the thing that tells us, you wake up in the morning, you're like, who am I? Who you are, in case you were wondering, is a part of a planet. And it's a part of an island that is the only place we know that life exists. And you are a part of it. That's what you are. You're not separate to it. You don't live on top of it. You are part of it. Uh, we are part of it. I'm not an alien. And um, so, so I think that the, the, that perspective from space is really valuable. But I think the more we discover space, the more we discover how much Earth matters. And I kind of also think about the whole thing of going to Mars, that we should not mess up our own planet. We're like, we need to pass our basic brownie badge in looking after our own planet before we go poking about on any others generally so i think i think i definitely think more of the resources should be pushed into earth but i also think that you know this visual this case of the visuals being missing that is starting to change because we we now have the, t the visualization technology that can turn our sonar maps and our flow maps and visualize them so that the ocean becomes a place and i mean i, I write about this i'm writing a book about this i've got to write be in my bonnet about it but um that, th that I think now we don't have the excuse anymore of not because the ocean is the heart of planet Earth. This is the engine that makes Earth habitable. Um, and so, so I think more resources could go that way. Well, I would put the resources not actually into the science, although the science always wants more, but into our perspective of it, like the tools that help us show us what this really is and how important it is. Um, and, where and, do you go? And, and you, do you really think that's true? Because you cannot move without seeing an Attenborough Blue Planet 3, 4, 5, so, I mean, because it feels to me like yeah, you see the they, ocean all the time. But we don't. What they're looking at is the fish. They're not looking <laughs> at the ocean itself. They're not looking at the physical engine. They're looking at things that live inside the physical engine that are part of it, but it's not like the ocean and the way it moves has not only shifted, you know, the, our trade routes, our, the place, the way our civilization is organized, all of that is, you know, the fact that we have enough oxygen to breathe 
Uh, and the fact that our atmosphere is stable, you know, we haven't got these huge temperature fluctuations that you see on Mars. That's because the ocean keeps our planet this way. Um, and so I th my, my bee in the bonnet with the ocean stuff is that people think the ocean equals fish. And if you think the ocean is only fish, that's like saying a human is only their kidneys. You know, they're very nice. We need kidneys. It's a very good thing. But you're missing the point. So I do know nephrologists who think humans are <laughs> just kidneys, actually. But sorry if there's any nephrologists in the audience. But, um. but, but I think, you know, so, so I think the thing that I think they do have in common is this, the, the method, this, this exploration thing, the method of exploration. And I want to ask you about... Um, to get onto the things that we learn from doing these things, because sometimes you have a task, and I think actually quite a lot of school and university is this, where it's not learning the thing that you're itself that is important, it's what you learn by doing it, right? It's the side lessons. Um, and you made, a, you made a brilliant series for the World Service called 13 Minutes to the Moon, and that was all about these little, like the things that no one ever saw, right? These, the technical achievements that, what, that underpin the main achievement. And so when it comes to the, 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 you know, those side things, the technical, the lessons on the side, how to think about being a human, how to think about building things, how to build teams, how much do we get back from the, the space stuff for that? So it's very difficult, isn't it? Because if you wanted to build a business plan for going, sending humans into space, it's, it's, it's just not there. And it doesn't really matter what anyone says. There's, there's this great statistic when Space Shuttle was flying. They said if you could get the payload... Uh, bay of space shuttle full of confetti and then you launch shuttle into space and all, if all of that confetti then magically turned to gold the mission would still make a loss so so so, so you know the, the the business plan does not appear to be there but there's a few things I mean, I mean I'm a great believer um, that that person can really sing can't they I, I, so, so so I'm a great believer in the idea that for you as a person but us as a species you know Anything you do that you try really hard at, even if you fail, makes you better at everything else. I mean, that, 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 that's, that's generally how I've approached my life, and I, and I think that's true of human endeavor in the exploration sphere. Um, Apollo was this incredible endeavor, and, and I think its most, important, its most important legacy is the generation of people that it carried forward who had a genuine fascination for all things science, not just space. Uh, and engineering and technology and mathematics and it is that sort of watershed moment in the history where we understand that to push back the boundaries uh, of everything in exploration science everything would take armies of people working hand in hand with technology and science to, to get there and so I think that's important because if you look at where we are now every the most the greatest existential threats to us as a species now are almost all, almost all require scientists, technologists, engineers, mathematicians to address. And you have to generate them somewhere. And, and, and you've got to build that case in primary colors. And so for me, it worked for me. And if it worked for me, it must have worked for other people. So for me, the most important legacy of that exploration has been the generation of people who came through to do the same. It is, if, I mean, as, as you have, I've been very lucky to go around and interview lots of people for the BBC. And, you know, you walk into, when the BBC used to make science documentaries, um, and the, uh, you two, you'd walk into meet people and you, I would, you know, you have a conversation and this question of how they got into their subject would often come up. And it's, I, I really, I have heard the same, that there is a 20-year sort of band of people in the, in, the, in the academic legacy who will say it was Apollo. 
And now they study, I don't know, bugs in swamps or something. But it was Apollo. And my question then is, what replaces that? Like now, in a world where space, is, is the space race enough still to play that role? Or do we need to think a bit more sophisticated here? Well, well so I think it is enough. Um, and, you know, you do need these vehicles, I think, to pull people in. And, and, you know, you need to get them young. And so we all know, all of us who've had kids, all of us who've been kids, I hope that's most of you, um, uh, you know, dinosaurs and space and astronauts, it, it, it is that way in. What's coming up in human spaceflight is the most ambitious and exciting slate of expeditions that we've seen for about the last 40 or 50 years. You know, we are straight-facedly talking about being back on the moon in the next 10 years, and that's realistic time frame. We have people straight-facedly talking about being on Mars, and that's happening. And, and th those missions will bring forward that, that next generation of people, at, along with the oceanographers, along with everything else. But, I mean, it's a great first vehicle. And, you know, my, I'm not an astronaut yet. I'm not an, <laughs> I'm not an astronaut. Um, but, 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 but I'm here with a career in science that I hope helps people as a doctor. Because, because of that love of science and exploration that came from something else. Well, let's get, I'm interested in this idea of, so I, um, one of the things that interests me most about, you know, again, both of us have had the opportunity to talk to many astronauts, um, is their attitude. Because I think on Earth, well, this is the sort of thing, when you get to the big problems of our time, pandemics, uh, climate change, poverty, plenty of other things, I think that the, the astronauts, like you don't, in a way, when you're choosing astronauts, you don't have any, you have to choose the people who are actually going to get the job done, not the ones who look like they're going to get the job done, not the ones who can pay the most. It's, it's, it's a very pure process. And they pick people now who are good team workers, who are, you know, can get on with a small number of people in space. And there's an analogy, so um, to go back to the ocean, in the Pacific, uh, Pacific voyaging, I don't know how many of you know, but the, the the Pacific is the home to the greatest nation of ocean voyagers, which are the Polynesians. Um, and they, you know, 500, 600, 700 years ago, they populated the Pacific, not by accident, but by deliberately voyaging between islands, knowing how to do it without modern navigation and doing it consistently. Uh, and the genetics backs that up. All those islands are related. But when they sort of rediscovered that in the 1970s, um, the first, so the sort of modern Hawaiians came to these ideas. They learned from the old navigators. They got their first voyaging canoe and they put the people on it who were best technically. And what happened is everything went wrong. They started arguing. People wouldn't do their job. They got lost a bit. No, you know, and it was, a, and then they started to look at it the old way around, which was that in order to be on the canoe, you had to kind of earn your place, not just technically, but by understanding the community and being a good team worker and playing your role. So I, basically the first lesson they learned wasn't actually the navigation that they thought was the hard bit. It, it was how to be humans in a small place, right? Uh, no, absolutely. And um, when it, it's a really interesting process, astronaut selection. And, and it's not what you think it is. Yet. I mean, these aren't... I, I don't know how many of you have seen that Matt Damon film, The Martian and everything. There are almost no astronauts 
who are like that, who are these like genius astronauts. I, I watched The Martian when I was in Houston, I was working for NASA, and I, I went down to the bar afterwards and there were a bunch of astronauts there who were like, hey, have you seen that film? The Martian, it's great. I mean, it's, you know, it's so technically correct. So I didn't know any of that stuff. I mean, <laughs> I would have just died out there. And, and that's most of them, right? But um, there's actually only one astronaut who's like that called Don Pettit, who is a genius. But, but, but mostly they're selected for their ability to be very calm under pressure and to be amazing team players. It's all about team. And, and the main prerequisite is that you're not going to murder your crewmate and your crewmate is not going to murder you after six months being locked up. So um, they have had a few fights up there. Um. <laughs> Anyone who's wondered about what spaceflight could have been, uh, Chris Hadfield wrote a book, uh, he wrote a novel recently, The Astronaut, which I can't just remember the name of, but it's got a very black cover. It's very, very good, but it's basically a, uh, it's a thriller set in space. But it's really close to real life. And at the end of the book, he reveals how much of it actually happened. And it is well worth reading the book and the coda just to find out how close space has sometimes been to going very, very wrong. <laughs> um, highly recommended. Um, but, but I thought what is, what is interesting about that, I think, is that the values, what we value on Earth. I mean, there's this thing that, you know, the people, astronauts come back and they talk about the overview effect, which is the visual thing, this, this sudden understanding of what, what a small human is in comparison to a big planet. But also, it feels like we don't learn these lessons of teamwork and humility from astronauts. Because the other thing is that, you know, they're encouraged to, as soon as they make a mistake, you must admit it, you say so straight away, right? Because that gives you the best chance of fixing it. And so it, I find it strange there's all these billionaires who have got to the top by... Now, I don't know much about the details, but I'm, I think quite a lot of it's quite cutthroat, should we say, in the capitalist commercial world. And they want to be astronauts, but they sort of don't by definition, on the way the Earth system works, they don't have these qualities of humility and teamwork. And, you know, they're the great independents who broke the mold. And that is not... And I find that, that mismatch very interesting. Yeah, I think you're much more likely to murder a billionaire in space than you are a professional <laughs> astronaut. But, but I, 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 th I think um, it is interesting, isn't it? Because th there is a definition of an astronaut. An astronaut is anyone who's flown above 80 kilometers. So that's the, that's the uh, above the so-called von Karman line. So the von Karman line is uh, at some point in the atmosphere, the atmosphere is so thin that the rudders and the aerolons on your aircraft don't, can't steer the vehicle because, you know, effectively aircraft swim in, in the air, sort of the way a boat sort of navigates the ocean that's just in three dimensions. But at some point in the atmosphere, the atmosphere is so thin that that, that stops being true and that's the Karman line. And um, so anyone who's been above the Kármán line is theoretically, according to the FAA, an astronaut. But there is much more to being an astronaut than that. And, um, and the space tourists it is interesting because they don't, you're right, they haven't been selected in the same way. And they do present a potential mission liability. So it, it's, it's hard to know how that goes on there and, and whether or not they they are, and there's a big debate about whether or not those people are astronauts or they're so-called space participants. So uh, it, it's going to be interesting to see how it goes forwards. And then within that, there's a division between the people who go and buy a ticket and go into space and the people who are truly innovating in space. And, you know, I think Elon Musk, love him or hate him, is in, he's, he's defied my expectations a few times. I'm not a big fanboy of his, but when I was at NASA in 2003 and they started talking about private companies engaging in building flight hardware for human spaceflight, I and a lot of people who knew what they were talking about said, these guys are never going to play in this field. This is what nation states do. This is what governments do. Privateers do not do this. And he's defied that expectation in, in solid fashion. So I used to think that he was 
going to be like a Howard Hughes character, like he'd build these wonderful flying machines and they would never be useful in any way. He, he is now one of the only reliable routes up to space He's basically saved NASA, hasn't he, well, 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 it's quite convenient timing because, I don't know if you know, but at the moment relations with Russia aren't that great. And, <laughs> and, and, and so, you know, until very recently, the only way to get up and down from space with people was on the Soyuz out of Kazakhstan. And, and it's actually very fortuitous that at this moment in time, you can go up on a Dragon capsule with SpaceX. Uh, and so the future, th it's, it's difficult because we, we, we've got used to, you know, this generation, us now, we've got used to space as being very routine. So since the start of this century, there has never, I need to get this right, there's never not been a human being in space. There has been a human being permanently in space since the start of the 21st century. Um, but this, this era is different. This era is us, after the moon, we fell back to Earth orbit. And, and in the next 10 to 20 years, we're going beyond, and I'm proper beyond. And that's going to happen quite quickly. And, and to me, it's, it's exciting. And there'll be a public-private partnership in that, and Elon Musk is almost certainly going to be part of that. So I can never quite decide what I think about um, someone. I mean, part of me thinks, you know, the billionaires that are arrogant can just clear off to space and stay there. But part of me thinks, well, if since they are the ones that have got all this money and do exactly what they want, you know, perhaps if speech, if space taught them a lesson or two and they came back, you know, they might actually be better people on the way. Because if we find this, uh, you know, so one of the, uh, see, if you're working on ships, there are people, you tend to be, I've just come back from a ship, uh, working on a ship for three weeks in the Baltic Sea. And everyone on board a ship is generally ace. And the reason is that if you're not a good teamwork and a nice person, you don't get asked back. And so oceanography as a discipline, the seagoing part of it, is kind of a filter for people who are really good at teamwork and who show up. And, you know, and it's the same with the canoes, right? If you want the canoes to, because I paddle Hawaiian outrigger canoes, if you want the canoes to go well, you know, they say a fast canoe is a happy canoe. Um, and all these other human qualities come into it. And so I would quite, I, I would quite like space to be a filter for the billionaires. Maybe they, if they learn a few lessons about humility and being small, they might come back and actually use all that wealth for doing good things. I'm not sure it works qu quite like that, but I would like it to. <laughs> I'm a big fan of that. But you, I mean, so the, um, what, what are the, when we're thinking about big problems like climate, I mean, so I, I do think that the, the view of Earth from space, that idea that we live on something so precious, um, the, the view is very uh, interesting, but I want to come to something which actually comes from a Twitter question or was included in a Twitter question that, I think it was Julie Harris sent in, can't just find it in my notes, Ju Julie Harrison, that was it, which was that when you live in space, you've basically got a self-contained system, right? Whatever is in it, that's all you've got, more so than on a ship. Um, and so you have to learn to make it work. Now, on the first Apollo, you know, the first Apollo missions, they were very short, they went up, they came down. You could kind of collect your waste or leave it on the moon as the, you know, you didn't have to worry. What are the lessons about our planet that come from creating yeah. an artificial living environment. So, I mean, that's fascinating. And, and, you know, I've been very lucky to interview quite a lot of the early Mercury and Apollo astronauts. So, so the first missions in space with humans, they did them, in terms of life support, they did them very much like, I'm afraid to say, all of you are going camping this weekend. They bring the stuff, they chuck it away. There's not that much recycling of the stuff that they brought with them. And what they realized as the missions progressed and, and as we developed our capabilities in space was the most expensive thing in spaceflight is lifting mass from the surface of the Earth into space. So the 
to launch a kilo of payload into, into low Earth orbit. So to get a kilo from here to 250 miles above the surface of the Earth, it's about $25,000. So it's very, very, very wasteful to keep carrying up more water, carrying up more oxygen, carrying up, etc. you know. And, and so, but as far as possible, they try and recycle. So you've got two approaches to life support. You've got the open loop, where is you take a bottle of oxygen, you breathe it, and you chuck the waste overboard. Uh, you drink the water, you chuck your pee over, literally chuck your pee overboard. And then you've got closed loop, where you recycle absolutely everything. Now, in between those two is this so-called sort of partially closed loops, and that's what we've got on the space station right now. So they do recycle an awful lot up there. They've learned very hard lessons about how hard it is to do that, but they recycle all of their urine. I mean, that, that's their, they love telling that joke. It's so annoying, but you know, the whole, the great thing about this coffee is it's gonna be coffee again tomorrow morning. But, but that's, how, that's how they do that. And, and, and there's someone in need of medical attention out there. But I, so, so, uh, it, so it's, it's what you learn from going into space. And as the missions go forwards, um, is that you need to do this progressive closure of the loops is how hard it is, how much energy you need to forge this single bubble of life support against the void. And, and, that, and that's what you're doing, right? So make no mistake, when you put people up there, you're sending them to go and live inside a machine upon which they depend every second of their mission for their very lives. And it's so hard to hold that bubble against the void. And, and what you realize as you're looking down on the Earth is there is a machine that does that. It's called the Earth. And you better look after it because no other machine does that. And, and I think that has been their realization. And so all of my mates who are in the core who fly, they spend, when they have any downtime, they love looking down on the Earth and that borderless globe and understanding the nonsense really that goes into a lot of the politics of it. But I think this is what, I mean, so I think one of the other, this, the question of perspective, because when we're talking about climate change and the ocean, um, we don't necessarily have a, a, we don't, and we're not conscious of our perspective on it. And I see this, you know, I'm not, the Gaia theory, the Gaia hypothesis kind of, you know, and Jim Lovelock will still not tell you what it is. He's 102, he's done well out of it. But um, still going, still awkward, 102. Um, but... But this, so but this idea, this this became Earth system science, right? This understanding that our oceans, our atmosphere, biology, rocks, and the ice are—they're continually exchanging things. That this machine is not, you know, pistons and cogs. It's a fluid machine which is doing lots of things all at the same time, one on top of the other. And and you know, carbon and energy are flowing around this system, and they're flowing through us. Basically, we have. Energy, energy flows through the Earth, matter goes round and round, and that's just the rules of a planet, right? It's the same on the space station. Energy you can collect through solar panels, stuff goes round and round unless you decide to throw it away. And then's just the rules, right? You've got to deal with that. And I think that that perspective is, you know, that perspective from space is, is really valuable because I think we don't appreciate how much everything we touch is part of a system and, the, and a touch is an interaction. Every time you put something down or pick it up or eat it or excrete it, um, you, it's gonna go somewhere else. It's part of a closed system and that is a beautiful, brilliant, amazing thing. Uh, uh, I, I mean, I, th I think the lesson that you learn, the, the, the abstract lesson most of all from spaceflight is that 
If you want a truly regenerative life support system, what you do is you create a solar system and then you basically coalesce some planets at a range of one astronomical unit from that sun. And then you wait for about four billion years, um, of which three and a half billion are spent getting to the point where complex life arises. And then you hope <laughs> in the 10,000 10, years of civilization, you then don't mess it up and break it forever, which is where we've got to. That, for me, is the most sobering thing. That basically, you know, in the time like so Earth's 4 billion years old, life turns up about 3.8, 3.5 billion years ago. Uh, Cambrian explosion about 500 million years ago. Human evolution, maybe 2 million years. Civilization, 10,000 years or so, depending on whose definition you take of that. And now we have the capacity to self-annihilate, either slowly or quickly, depending on who's president of the United States at the time. And, 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 um, and that's both marvelous and sobering at the same time. And I, that is the perspective for me that, that space gives you. There's this thing, I just wanted, there's this thing called the Fermi paradox, right? I don't know how many of you are familiar with that. But this whole deal, the universe is 13.7 billion years old, give or take. Um, and so there's a lot of time in a very big universe for other places to have had life. So, you, you know, we are a civilization, as I say, that's about 10,000 years old, right? So you don't have to be, there's plenty of time for there to be civilizations that are truly ancient, not thousands of years, but tens of thousands of years, or hundreds of thousands of years, maybe fractions of a billion years old. They should have had time to, they should be sort of, you know, the, the equivalent of HS2 stringing between us and Andromeda by now. They're not there. And Fermi, Enrico Fermi, um, who, was a, who was a nuclear scientist, said, where are they? If they're aliens, where are they? Why aren't there any out there? And one of the terrifying answers to that paradox, the fact that we don't see any aliens, is because the suggestion that civilization with the capacity to communicate across the void does arise elsewhere, but it never lives long enough to be on the map at the same time as you. And, and you know, the more you look at what we're doing, the more that becomes plausible theory. So basically, any, any civilization with enough technology to travel the void has enough technology to annihilate itself, and it does. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and more recently I've mused... Hello, I'm Latitude, I hope you're having a lovely <laughs> Saturday afternoon. Well, more recently, I, 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 I suggest that, you know, the Fermi paradox is possibly explained by the, the, the near coincidental invention of nuclear technology and social media, probably. But, but so, so, so I, I think, I think there was a beautiful, I remember when we first started, so this is all the Drake equation stuff, right? So Frank Drake and the team really thought about this. It was more than pub chat. They'd laid it down in an equation. I, I interviewed Frank Drake on the 60th anniversary, I think, of that, that equation being developed. Um, but uh, he painted this amazing picture, and he said, look, the universe, we're not alone, but we'll always be lonely, is what he thinks. And he said, you know, if you imagine you've got a, a map of the universe, and you can see lights coming on, and they get brighter and brighter as they get more technologically advanced, and then they wink out uh, when, when they self-annihilate. He said, you can imagine a map of the universe where these lights come on, get brighter, and, and then go dark but no two lights are on at the same time and close enough for you to be able to say hi across the void. And I, you know, that's very plausible to me um, and also quite upsetting and quite sobering about what that means for us. I, I, I think that we're over-reliant on this idea that we're just gonna tech our way out of this thing. And, and I, that, that, is the, that is the boomster version of this. I'm not convinced that is the case. Yeah, no, I don't, I don't agree either. And I think actually it's dangerous, like we, the solutions we have, we already have, and everyone's just looking for an excuse not to use them because there might be something else. And I think that, 
sure, there are better ways to do it. There are better ways to build wind turbines and solar panels and recycle things, but we can do it now. And, it, and, the, and the excuse of waiting is not, not necessary. But then all of this comes down to a sort of who decides thing. And I think that the question of, I mean, this is something we face with pandemics. It's something that applies with climate change. It's something that applies in space is that, you know, we talk about humanity doing these things and humanity having problems as though all the billions of people on this planet have an equal say or have equal opportunity. And the case with space absolutely so far is that this is a game for exceptionally privileged people. Um, no, even before the billionaires, it's a small fraction of Earth, and you can perhaps argue that if it's government-funded, there's some benefit to the society, and that's fine. But when it came to the pandemic, and when it comes to climate change, the biggest questions are not about what we do, it's about how do you make it fair? Because if, if it was just about what do you do, we can do things. And if everyone, if it was a level playing field, we, to some extent, I think we could just do those things. And it's this question of how do you make it fair that is much, much, much harder because we live on a planet where there are huge inequalities and where we in this society benefit from those inequalities. Um, so, and space is kind of the same. Like at the moment, there's all this stuff where people say, oh, well, we are going to space and we are, you know, how much is this a fallacy in space? You think that the, the, the great we are going is a sort of convenient cover for the privileged are going. Oh, I don't know. It's, I, I, I thought we were in danger of getting onto the pandemic there. If you were depressed about climate change, I can yeah. really depress you about the <laughs> pandemic. I, um, so I, I, I will just say that. So I was, so in the last two years, I, I've been national clinical advisor for the COVID-19 incident. I think some of my colleagues who've been doing that with me in the room, and I'm sure some people here worked in that. Um, um, I would say about that in terms of we're talking about, about equality here and, and inequality of how these affect people. You know, if you wanted to invent some sort of indicator substance to pour into a society to show you where the inequality was, COVID was it, and it hit those with the least, the hardest, and we did not mitigate that particularly well, I don't think. I think there's some very hard lessons to be learned. Um, the, other thing, the other thing I learned was the, the, the only thing that we know about national emergencies is from watching repeats of the Battle of Britain uh, and a few Hollywood sci-fi blockbusters, and none of that stuff is true. So, so, so in all the Hollywood films, there's this list of people who they look up and they go and land a helicopter on their lawn, they pick them up and they fly them to the cave or whatever, and they all plan it out. There is no list, I know, because I got rung up because you just happen to be in someone's phone book near the start, and they're like, we just need some help. And so that's why I ended up in that role. Um, I think that when it comes to space, it is true that until now only a small fraction of people have been able to do it, but that has been true of all exploration since the beginning of time, and that in and of itself is not an argument against it. Second, I think that exploration is something that you don't have to do physically. I think a lot of my exploration is, is the way that you explore and the way that all other scientists explore, which is most of what we do. And I know you love getting out in the ocean, but most of your exploration is done with your mind and, and, and exploring the concepts. And that's in something in which everyone can share. And, the thing that made me really think about that the most was there's this wonderful article, uh, and you should look it up if you're interested. There was an interview with a guy called Guy Consiglio, who is the Pope's astronomer. And I'm not a particularly religious person, but, but he, he was asked about why he was, it seemed a weird thing that he would be an astronomer uh, in the Vatican. But he, he tells this great story about going out on the missions and to low-income uh, uh, you know, countries and teaching them about subsistence farming and teaching them how to survive. But once they found out he was an astronomer, they would always ask him about that, and that's all they wanted to hear about. And he'd say, no, no, look, look, we need to learn more about how to get your community to be sustainable. And he says that what he realized is that 
you had to teach them to subsist, you had to teach them to survive, and you had to help them to survive. But if you didn't also give them something out there that was visionary, then they felt like cattle. They felt all I'm doing is eating and sleeping and repeating. And, and that, I think, it, I think that is true. I think you need that, and I think you need that as a driver in society. And so I think that space exploration is something we all get to participate in. Um, and, and, you know, for me at the moment, this is such a fertile time for that. And I think the fruits of that are difficult to know and difficult to estimate, but it worked for me. And I think it will work for other people and it will, think it will work for people in this tent. And I think that it will drive on a generation of people who will have a better sense of their stewardship of this planet and the means, the tools to tackle that. And they may start with space, but they'll end up as oceanographers and they'll end up as climate scientists and that's what we need. And there's no other way of generating them, I don't think. So I, that, those are powerful words, but I think we can add that if we had a better relationship with our planet through our lives, I think that fascination would come from the ground up. And I think possibly what we're talking about here is that by being aware of your existence on a planet and by looking at the ocean and the forests and seeing how you relate to it, there's a ground up view of what it means to be a human. And there's a space down view of what it means to be a human. And actually it's only where those two things come together that our species can really reach its potential with both of those. Yeah, absolutely. And it's all about humility and our place in the universe and, and what we take for granted in this planet. And, you know, again, I, the planet is, look, I'm, I'm not, I'm not a subscriber to Gaia theory in its purest form, which is, you know, that's the idea that the whole planet is a, itself a living organism of weir, which is the component part. But, but you can't help but feel the planet sending you some fairly clear messages recently. And the pandemic is one of those messages. I, I remember when I started in my national clinical advisor role, at one point, and my job was to gather information because we just didn't know how we were going to take this on. It was just terrifying. I can't describe to you how terrifying it was. And I picked up the phone to some of our most senior virologists, and I said, why is this happening now? Why is this now? And they said to me, well, it's happening now. You shouldn't be surprised it's happening now, because since the start of the 21st century, we've had two coronaviruses, two coronaviruses with pandemic potential, one of which turned out to be pandemic, three flu viruses at least that had pandemic potential, and Ebola. And so... Um, uh, and, and, and I said, well, why, why have there been so many near misses in the 22 years of this century? And he said, because the answer to the question, how many people live on the face of the planet now, when we were growing up was three and a half billion people, and now it's 7.6 billion people. And the answer to the question, where are you going on holiday this summer, when we were growing up used to be Bogdan Regis, and now it's Guatemala or, or wherever. And so lot more people, more contact with nature, more exchange across the globe, more fossil fuels in the atmosphere. That is what's happening. And I, you, I don't care who you talk to, that's definitely what's happening. So there's a critical connect, we are critically connected now. We've uh, hit critical mass we, in terms we, yeah, of Yeah, and, and I think that science is there both to contextualize us, to provide us with those solutions, but also to be used responsibly by governments with a bit of humility about, about <laughs> what nature does. So I um, think that's, that's probably, I think we, I hope everyone agrees on humility with regard to nature because it's got a lot to teach us. I do want to allow the audience time to ask some questions. We've talked for a while. We have five or so minutes. Um, if you would like to ask a question uh, for either of us or on any of these topics or anything else within reason, we can't cover. We've covered a lot, but, you know, let's not go too much further. Um, has anyone got a question that they would like to ask? 
Um, yes, could you shout out your question in the middle there? Yes. Oh, there is a mic going well, round. If it doesn't, somewhere. I don't know who's got the mic. Oh, the mic's over there. <laughs> That's going to be quite a quite a okay. ride there and then there. Yeah. Uh, is there anyone? Oh, okay. And then down at the front there. Yeah. It's one mic. So. And if you could make questions, short questions, but not comments, please. What sorts of things should the leaders in the NHS take note from the space program and Apollo 13 in particular? Yeah, okay. <laughs> there's, there's a long and career... I suspect he could write a book on that. There's, there, there's a long and career-limiting answer to this. Uh, uh, so, 13 Minutes to the Moon, which is this podcast I made, is a real labour of love, and I went around and sat in the living rooms of people who ran the Apollo missions and, you know, mission controllers and stuff. But if you listen to it, I... I it, it, the first series is very much a sort of management playbook for the NHS leadership. The second one is just I'm screaming at them by the end, actually, because we're in the middle of the pandemic by that point. The things that you learn for any organization through the Apollo missions is, one, you've got to make decisions in the face of uncertainty. Two, you've got to early commit to those decisions. Three, you've got to defer to expertise and delegate authority. You can't command and control something that big you've got to give some of the most junior people in your organization ownership. Because if you believe in any way in the quality of your HR process, those people can deliver for you. Four, you've got to be prepared to fail. And five, the only reason that that's okay is because you go again, and you go again, and you go again. And that is how they got through Apollo. And that is how we got through COVID. Because COVID was that thing for us, and I saw it up close. Um, you know, Having spent my life looking at other organizations for lessons we might bring back to the NHS, Watching the NHS become its own masterclass was a real thing for me. And the way we did it was we did all of those things, and every day we were wrong. But we went again, and every day we were less wrong until one day we were almost right. And that's how you get through any crisis. Yeah, deserves a round of applause. Okay, we had another so the person with the microphone. Where's that gone? Hello? There's another question. Hello. Hello. Yes. Um, when I was at school, uh, biology was seen as much less, uh, just much less than physics or chemistry. We could drop biology, no big deal. Physics or chemistry, you carry it on. Now it's changed. Is the reason for that related in some way to seeing tech as the answer rather than having the respect for nature that we need to do? And as a, as a slight second thing, is that partly because biology was seen by maybe my parents' generation as being more for girls, whereas space, physics, chemistry was being seen as more for boys. So the question for anyone who didn't hear it, thank you, was um, that in school the, the focus was more on physics and chemistry. If you dropped a science, you dropped biology. Uh, and, and perhaps the priorities have shifted now. And is that because of this assumption that we can tech our way out of things? So I, I would say to that that possibly part of the reason for it is that if you want to become a biologist, honestly, GCSE biology is not going to help you. You need the chemistry and physics to be a good biologist. Uh, and the same for mathematics. And I, get, I do still get kids that come up to me and say, oh, you know, I really like um, biology, but I'm not very good at maths. And you, you have to do the maths. Like, you cannot make sense of these things without the maths. So I think there's different ways of teaching biology. And one of them is kind of the general knowledge that you need to exist in society, which is how plants work and, you know, what kidneys do. And the other bit is the foundation for understanding a biological system. And that you don't need. You know, those are two separate things. And I don't think we make that split very well. Um, but of course, and I think to your other, you know, th this idea that the space race came along and the great innovators were all the control. Humans can control physics and chemistry much more easily than, than they can control biology. 
And so it's an easy place to put your effort. I don't know what Kevin No, no, I us. totally agree. Totally agree. I think that, that is absolutely the case. Okay, do we have another? We've got one more, I think, just one more. Perhaps over there? Yes. Uh, with the, yes. Um, does, uh, as you've said, oceanography and the space race uh, also link to plants and like on land as well as in the water and in? But I guess above the planet. So is the ocean? Yes, the oceans. I mean, my answer would be long, but not career-ending to this one. Um, <laughs> yes, absolutely, they're linked all the time, and and the ocean fertilizes the land just as the land fertilizes the ocean. So. It's not that the ocean is separate, and actually the, the, the edges are much more fuzzy than people think. So people think that the coast is a line, and it's not. It's, it's a fuzzy grey area where uh, water comes in and out, and it's half ocean and half land. And things cross that barrier, so where salmon come swim upriver, for example, and then die upriver, um, they provide a huge amount of nitrogen and phosphorus to the forests there that came from the ocean. So the exchanges are direct all the time. Often it's gases in the atmosphere, but... Um, the, the land and the ocean are part of the same system. I mean, in a way, that's the lesson of being on planet Earth and, and the, what the sort of things that Kev's been talking about, which is that humans, Western science was very successful in some ways because it compartmentalized. But the lesson of compartmentalizing everything and saying, well, it's either a rock or it's an insect or it's a something else, is that after a while, the fuzzy boundaries between all those things become hard. If you're completely focused on your categories, there are countless examples in science where science was held back because people were arguing about whether something was in one category or another. And actually, the answer is both. You know, if you look at symbioses between fungi and trees, for example, um, it's not an either or thing. So I think that the categorization is really important for learning about science as a way of getting the basics. But after that, then these things, you have to study them together. Uh, and the ocean really throws that in your face because life in the ocean is not like life on land. Life in the ocean is very small, very short-lived, and exceptionally numerous. And on land, we think of life as a tree, which is very stationary, very long-lived, uh, and very, very big. And, and so all these concepts, it's much more fluid. Life in the ocean is a much more accurate representation, I think, of life in general because it's fluid and complicated and changeable. And we see life on land as being long-lived and static, which is not representative of a system, I think. So I don't know if you have anything to add yet. Well, well uh, only to say that, you know, the question here has been, what do you really learn from space exploration? And what you learn if you're doing it properly is respect, respect for the planet on which you live. There's this wonderful science fiction film um, uh, called Silent Running uh, um, uh, uh, that, that I remember, A, it scared the hell out of me when I was uh, little. It's made in the 1970s. It was very prescient. It's sort of this idea that there's been this global catastrophe, climate catastrophe, and they're, they're flying on these long deep space missions with these space greenhouses to try and reseed the Earth. Um, it's a fantastic film. You should definitely try and watch it if you haven't watched it. Bruce Dern, amazing film. But the, here's the thing, is that it seems totally plausible. They've got these big, you know, uh, sort of greenhouses the size of this tent sort of studded on the side of this spacecraft. That's really, really, really hard to do. We've tried it. We've, we've tried to grow stuff in space. You don't have soil. So, so it's already, you don't have a substrate on which plants can easily grow and grab nutrients out of. It's hard to get your water sources going. You do this hydroponic growth. You don't have natural sunlight because you're filtering out a lot of the radiation that's harmful that comes through when you're outside the Earth's atmosphere. So you get these really weird looking plants. And um, 
And in the end, what they've worked out is that if you want to, because what they want to do is they want to grow plants to help them with their life support system. Because the best way to breathe oxygen is have a plant that scrubs out your carbon dioxide that you breathe out and generates oxygen. But it's really hard to do. And even when they've done it on, on the ground in like, like simulated spacecraft, you can grow up 10,000 wheat plants, you can grow enough wheat to scrub out your carbon dioxide and generate enough oxygen. But then if you have crop failure, you have crew failure, everyone dies. And so the thing that you learn about growing plants in space is that, again, it is super hard to do if you don't have a biosphere underneath you and that biosphere isn't easily manufactured. So it's all about respect and, you know, the more you go through and the more you know, the more you realize that most of the stuff we want to do has been invented already. It just takes four and a half billion years to do it, and so you better look after the version that you've got already. And I think we are going to have to finish this event there. So um, this, if you're interested in this kind of stuff, CosmicShambles.com has lots of it. There are plenty of podcasts. This will be out as a podcast very soon. Uh, there are lots of other podcasts. You can support us on Patreon, and there's loads of other Cosmic Shambles stuff. Uh, so I hope that has injected some ideas and some inspiration, not too much depression, into your afternoon. Uh, so please go out there, have respect for the planet, enjoy the outside, and join me in thanking Kevin Fong. Thank you very much. Thanks very much for listening. Remember to subscribe and rate five stars and all that sort of stuff. Uh, subscribe at Patreon as well, patreon.com slash cosmic shambles. That is where you can go to sign up and support the network and get loads of extra goodies as well, especially lots of extra content from our debut feature film, Rapid Motion Through Space, which is coming out in 2023. Until next time, take care, stay safe and bye for now. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network.